This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, um, and th- welcome to the final session of our series of six lunchtime conversations. Uh, I'm Russell Briggs. I'm Director of Museum Experience and Engagement here at the museum. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for keeping your masks on while you're in the audience. We're lucky enough to be able to take them off while we talk to you, but we'll put them right back on when we, when we sit down again. Um, I appreciate you coming out when uh, this extra burden is put upon you. Um, I think it'll be worth it. I think you'll really enjoy today's conversation. Um, we, uh, uh, we had to keep you out there a little bit longer because we're having some audio problems with the, with the miking, and it's possible that we may end up having to work without mics, um, which means if those of you who are in the back have trouble hearing, please feel free to come down a little bit. We're going to do our best. Um, but there's been a little bit of a feedback problem. Uh, so um, just bear with us a little bit. I, hopefully it's solved now. You might be able to hear a tiny bit of that ringing in the background, yeah. Um, so l- let me just start today uh, um, by saying that we're gathering here on Gadigal land. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, we send our respect to elders past and present for the use of their land today. Um, over the past six weeks, this lunchtime conversation series, um, which many of, uh, many of which um, I think some of you, because I can recognize your faces, have been to some or all of them, um, we've, uh, we've presented uh, talks about the lives and achievements of some of our First Nations visionaries. Um, some of them are featured in the 200 Treasures exhibition, but there's also a connection through these conversations to our Unsettled exhibition. And if you haven't gotten a chance to go see it, I, I hope you do. I think probably most people in this room have. Um, but if you haven't had a chance yet, it's something very, very special. Um, this afternoon's conversation is being recorded for uh, ABC Radio for uh, Larissa Barron's um, program, Speaking Out. So if anybody doesn't want to be recorded um, for posterity on the ABC, you might refrain from asking questions during the, uh, during the Q&A portion uh, of the day. Um, so today's topic is titled Innovation Old and New Ways. And in exploring the, first, uh, the legacy of First Nations trailblazer David Unaipon uh, and the application of traditional knowledge systems in solving modern issues, this is something that's really important to this museum as a culture and science museum. Um, there's, a, there's a really strong intersection here, and I, I can't wait to hear how this conversation ensues and uh, what we as a museum can learn from what's talked about today. Um, I, I, you can hear from my accent, I'm an immigrant to this country, so I, I didn't know who David Unaipan was when I got here. Uh, and um, I've been amazed at what I've found in the little bit of Googling that I've done, and I don't know in the Australian education system how much you actually learn about him. Um, I, I have my suspicions, uh, and maybe we'll hear a little bit more about that uh, today. Um, uh, and I won't say much about him because uh, I'll let um, these two esteemed people uh, talk about him, but uh, just in, in, in great summary, uh, he's the son of a preacher and a writer. Uh, he was a Naranjeri man, and he was born in the Kurong. Um, as well as being a preacher himself, David was a writer, a storyteller, lecturer, and most notably an inventor. Um, his most famous invention uh, is popularly reduced to electric sheep shears, but there's so much more to the story than that, and I hopefully that will come out today so much more. And I think we tend to be te- 
quite reductive when we think about things like that. Um, but the expansiveness of what he was able to do is really the main part of the story. Um, uh, the, the notes here said it involved the conversion of rotary motion into tangential reciprocating movement. Maybe we'll find out what that means, maybe we won't, but <laughs> that's what it says in Google anyway. Um, but I don't think we can understate the importance of that because the, as with so many of these, uh, these people and these type of acts in their life, it has a resounding effect through not only their lives, but through all our lives. And I think that's the important thing to recognize. Um, he inhabited a space that shared both Western religion and First Nations spirituality and practice. And there's a whole dimension of the story there that I think is so important to bring out as well. Um, for the people that we're going to be speaking with today, um, we've got Jason DeSantolo here on my immediate left. Um, uh, uh, like, like David, Jason is an innovator himself. Uh, he's a Garwa and Burangan man. Um, he's associate professor of indigenous research in the School of Design at University of Technology, Sydney, and an adjunct associate professor uh, in the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Jason co-edited Decolonizing Research, Indigenous Story Work as Methodology in 2019 um, with Joanne Archibald and Jenny Lee Morgan. His latest documentary, uh, Warbadar Bananu Water Shield, also from 2019, explores water contamination in his homelands in Mburalula in the Northern Territory. And uh, let me introduce uh, to my further left, uh, Professor Larissa Barron. Uh, many of you uh, know her now, um, having uh, been uh, at these talks, but in many other ways as well. Uh, she's a Yualaroi and Gamilaroi woman. Um, we're so pleased to have her here working with us. As many of you know, she's a trustee of the museum, so we're lucky enough to be able to do a lot of different projects with her. And um, this is the second time she's hosted one of the Lunchtime Conversation series as well. Um, she's the Director of Research and Academic Programs at the Jambana House of Learning at UTS. Uh, she's a graduate of UNSW Law School. She has a master's and uh, uh, an SJD from Harvard Law School, which is a doctor, a doctor of judicial science, um, which I had to Google <laughs> and have found out that that's the highest degree that you can get from Harvard Law School. So I was pretty impressed by that. Uh, she's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and a founding member of the Australian Academy of Law. And in her spare time is also a celebrated novelist, a filmmaker, and a host of the ABC radio show Speaking Out, of which today's conversation will be part. So thank you very much for being here today. And let me hand it over to J Jason and Larissa now. Thank you, Russell, for that lovely introduction. Um, I'd also like to join in the acknowledgement of country and pay my respects to the elders who share this country and their knowledges with such generosity. And as part of that, I'd like to acknowledge Arnie Glendra in the audience, who's our elder in residence at UTS and a longtime family friend and a great mentor to us all. Thank you for being here. Um, so when um, I was approached about uh, this session and uh, with the idea of interviewing somebody who I guess uh, would evoke the spirit of David Unipe and I immediately thought of Jason DeSantelo as somebody who's, um, who I've, I've worked with, whose work has really influenced me. Um, I think what you'll see today as we um, talk about Jason's background and his work 
Um, he's a really great example of uh, the way in which um, our, our scholars and thinkers um, really engage with the ideas within our traditional knowledge networks and seek ways to integrate them, uh, enhance them, protect them, uh, restore them uh, through using technologies. And I also want to look at the really impactful work Jason's done in terms of the way we've rethought really um, uh, the way we've thought long rethought long-held approaches in academia, particularly around methodology, and looking at how, how indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous perspectives can enrich the way we think about the um, Western disciplines and academy. So I'm really excited to be um, having this conversation with you, Jason. And I thought we'd start off just by asking you about um, where you grew up, because that's an interesting story in and of itself to set the scene. Um, oh, thank you. Nana uh, Manuru, greetings, everyone. Um, just want to pay respects to Gadigal country and um, elders past, present and, and emerging, and Ani Glendra in particular, who's come and honoured us with their presence today, and thank you so much for your support along the way. Can everyone hear me? Sorry, I'll speak up a little bit. Um, yeah, so uh, just I have some, some images to share alongside my yarn. Um, yeah, I, I work in a school of design at the moment, um, and it's been a long journey to find, find myself there, and it's a real honour to be here, and thank you, thank you Russell. And, um, in particular, it's very humbling to, to be speaking uh, about innovation and the importance of um, indigenous knowledge systems as we move forward in what is the most, you know, probably the most powerful social and environmental crisis moment that we, we have seen in, in quite a few generations. Um, I was born in Darwin and um, in, in the tropics, and um, uh, unfortunately it was the tail end of the stolen generations, and what happened was my mother was forced to give me up for adoption. And Cyclone Tracy came in in 74 and totally smashed, smashed Darwin, and um, I was adopted by a Kiwi, Kiwi mum, and um, at that time, she just took off. All the, all the women and children and dogs and pets were, were sent away. And so she took that time to leave my father, who was a very, very abusive man. And um, she took off back to Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so um, I arrived there as a young, um, yeah, young, young two-year-old. And um, this image is really quite important, I thought, as a as a, a reflection of um, my understanding of the importance of water as a connector. So this is the west coast of Auckland where I grew up. And um, in my mind, it's been a huge influence on how I see the world. Rather than seeing the ocean as a, as a divider, it's very much a connector. So the waters as a way to relate and understand connection has been important growing up. Um, and in particular, um, the idea of perpetual motion and the obsession that David Nunaipon had with perpetual motion is really beautiful, I think. I think it's a really fascinating, under those conditions, to have someone who has so much determination and willpower um, to strive to try to achieve what has, still hasn't been achieved. Um, but also, you know, Aotearoa New Zealand has a huge sheep population, of course. And um, 
you know, I don't want to belittle that thing that, that he um, seems to be most famous for. But the idea of surge and resurgence, the idea of perpetual motion, in my mind, is reflected in the ocean. I think the ocean gives us a lot, um, a lot of inspiration in terms of life and renewal and um, the idea of connection across, across the lands. Yeah. And then later on, I, I came back to, to Australia. It has given you this sort of wonderful um, uh, ability to see across the world's oldest living culture, mm. which you were born into, mm. and of course the youngest culture in the Pacific, the Maori culture, which you were very closely integrated into. But mm. um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your worldview was shaped, given those you know, mm. interesting dynamics you grew up with. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, my, my, you know, growing up in a single parent family is, is quite unique and um, my grandparents had a huge influence on me, my Italian grandfather and my, um, my grandmother. And as a very ma matriarchal family, really strong um, woman and it's the same back here, my family, my mother is one of seven sisters here. So yeah, my whole life I've been surrounded by a really strong woman. Um, and my grandfather in particular taught me a lot about the idea of being a respectful man, um, and um, and I hope, you know, I hope that we're passing that on to our, our our children. But in particular, after schools, I would be sent to a sort of a foster home scenario where I'd stay, and there were heaps of Maori and Pacific Pacific people. So my nickname was Abo at school. You know, I got in lots of fights, and um, I was the only Aboriginal kid, probably that I knew of. Um, but I was very much adopted into um, the Māori sort of kinship um, for Naungatanga. Um, so I, I think I kind of grew up in essence through the land as well. So um, understanding more as I grew older, I realised that Australia being one of the oldest places in the world with the oldest culture, and then growing up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is one of the newest lands in the world and the newest indigenous culture, so I think all of the, you know, the materials and all the food and all the air and the breath that has came into me as I grew up um, created, you know, created a different kind of um, person in a way. Um, and that's, that was really interesting when I came back and went and met, met all my family um, in the middle of law school. And all these, you know, all my family, they really, like a lot of, got a lot of fear family, but I've got a lot of really dark family. And um, they, they didn't freak out at all. So it was when I came back, the family were like, you know, we have the same blood. We have the same blood. You know, it's not about skin color. And, um, and I think that was, uh, that was part of the experience of growing up in, in Pacifica in particular. Um, yeah, the, the beauty of that, that kind of nurturing family approach to life. Outside of the family, were there particular leaders or thinkers who influenced you? Um, yeah, I mean, in, back in the day, um, you know, I think, you know, some of the bigger moments around, you know, Nelson Mandela and, you know, the, the actual struggles of people who are get, being incarcerated for a movement um, really, really struck a chord with me. Um, people like Moana Jackson and others who are real leaders in the in advocating for indigenous rights. Um, 
the Bringing Them Home report, which I read at law school, um, was really amazing because back in the day, um, I think what happened in the media, there wasn't a lot about Aboriginal culture. So you might see a bit of Bangara or you might see sort of like the really popular culture. But reading things like the Bringing Them Home report, which was authored by McDodson and others, um, really shone a light on some of the, the real radical and activists in the, you know, in the legal fraternity. Uh, Michael Mansell was another real leader that I really looked up to from afar, yeah, as well. So you did end up at law school. It wasn't mm. really mentioned so much in your CV because I guess we focused on the mm. cultural work you've done and the work around filmmaking and yeah. design and innovation and methodology, but you did start out uh, at law school, what made you decide that that was the path you wanted to take? Um, did you decide to go to law school? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I really pondered that with when you shared the questions with me. And, and um, one of the things that I always had growing up was a, a document. And there's a there's a beautiful letter from David Unipon that I want to share later. Um, and the um, growing up, I had my my mother asked for uh, records about my history. So what happened? the system was hacked and someone sent all of my legal documents for adoption. And so from a very young age, I had this document which said, oh, I'm a son of a half-caste Aboriginal woman. She was one of seven sisters. His father was really white, you know, that sort of stuff. And, um, and I think that idea of having that document um, all those years, which really defined me, and really traps a lot of our people, these really, you know, really damaging documents which try to dehumanise you. So the thing about going to law school was, was good because it was a way of liberating myself. So going to law school and really challenging and going into the heart of the suppressive system, I think that's one of the reasons why I went to law school, yeah. How did you feel when you graduated? Yeah, pr pretty relieved. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah pr pretty relieved is pretty much... Pretty much it. I was, it was. It was tough. I had a, you know, I had a, uh, a beautiful. My, my oldest son was born in the middle of my law degree, and um, so it was a tough time for me. So getting graduating is always a really achievement for the family. Um, I felt great. I was going to ask how they felt because you look at the life of the generation before ours. All our mm. great um, thinkers were often yeah. denied that opportunity to. Yeah go through and do this, the same pathways we had and yeah. uh, here was our generation kind of being the first to be able to do that in the numbers that we've done it. So mm. what did it mean to them to see you do that? Yeah, they were really, um, really proud. Um, it's one of the few times I saw my grandfather cry. Um, he's a really tough old, old you know, um, Italian labourer. Um, but also the family back home, I came back to Borolula and met all my family and they were like, wow, you're going to be a lawyer, that's amazing. You can, you know, you can do this and this and this and you can help my son get out of jail and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, um, but the idea of treaty, you know, I, was a, you know, I studied treaty significantly and environmental law. And at that time, Yothi Yindi, you know, was really still really massive. And um, it's kind of a part of a pop popular consciousness so as a lawyer in a family um, that has never had a, never seen someone graduate or, um, it was a really big thing for both sides of the family, yeah. I want to ask you about that transition from sort of law into academia and filmmaking, but mm. I guess before we do that, it might be a good moment just 
to, I guess, make a bit of a reflection on David Uniapin, and I wonder if you can mm. share with us what he represents to you. Yeah, I mean, if I could just go. This is um, an image from me. This is my co post-COVID image um, um, of me um, working on, um, this is in Darwin, so I just wanted to share that as a bit of a joke. Um, and when I was blonde, which is crazy, um, my hair has gone darker as I've got older. Um, and this is, uh, I'll just, um, yeah, sorry. This is a letter that was sh um, shared by the museum um, in the research we did. And it's such a powerful representation of what I believe he was facing in terms of the conditions that he worked in at that time. And um, in particular, I, I thought, you know, um, asking for $25, the idea of asking for 25 pounds um, and getting five pounds back um, is a real indi indictment of the, how the system was. But in particular, um, what I really drew from, from this was um, the ambition to rise, the idea that against all the odds and against all of, all of the systems that were at play, he maintained that, that really real um, uh, you know, ambition to rise. And I, can, I, I really do see that in a lot of the young people, you know, a lot of our young people today who are rising against stop, you know, deaths in custody, who are rising for Black Lives Matter, who are rising against fracking and mining and the contamination of our lands. Um, and, you know, um, karanga gingali is a, is a term that our elders have, have taught me, which is the idea of, you know, a stance, a, a rising stance, the idea that we have always been ready to look after country based on, um, based on the conditions of survival. You know, the, the basic idea of survival um, is, a, you know, is, is much more um, present today in terms of protection of the environment. In those days, I think, it would have been, you know, such a, the, the idea of contributing to society and production would have been much more, um, much more of a pr profound project. Um, so in my mind, seeing him as an elder, an elder statesman um, and, you know, this is very much a nut and jury story too. So, you know, the idea of the family and, his, and all of the support that he had in terms of um, understanding that, that complexity around, um, you know, the, the deep, you know, Western religious beliefs and um, the deep knowledge that he would have held as a senior man. Um, he, he, he must have been um, a little bit tortured in a way, I believe. So I think seeing these kind of letters documented and shared um, is really important to understand how um, other people were coming through. So working in a design school is amazing to see um, people really critiquing the idea of, say, materials, you know, the idea that we need to decolonize our relationship to the materials we use and the intent behind what we're trying to achieve. And um, Joel Spring is an amazing young Wiradjuri scholar who's doing that work in, in architecture at the moment. So I think the legacy of, of his story is going to continue to resonate across, across generations, albeit for different purposes. Um, so I think that's, that's the real junction point. You know, we're in a museum right now which was really a place where you put things in to kill them. You know, you put things in to, to kill culture 
And um, now we're seeing an unsettled exhibition, you know, that's just been, a, you know, Laura McBride and Mariko Smith have just done an amazing job and the rest of the museum staff to say the foundations of this place are, are, are problematic, to say the least. And um, yeah, I'm just really, yeah, really, really excited to, under, to see how this legacy transforms and resonates across the generations in a way that we wouldn't, we're never going to really understand. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's a difficult proposition um, to to lay bullet points down for. Um, but uh, yeah, I really, I, I really am, am in, in awe of, of of him and. I'd love to know more about the Nalanjeri context and, um, and, and learn more from his family about the legacy that is carrying on in his bloodline as well. Um, I think that would be really important to understand. Mm. Let's return to that idea that you move from law to mm. academia and then you're still in academia, but you've added filmmaking to your kind of portfolio of mm. activities. Can you just talk us through that journey? Sure, yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that we, when I went back to Borolula, Borolula is in the southwest gulf of Carpentaria in the Northern Territory. It's a, very, um, it's, a, it's a very small town and there's four main clans there. Uh, it's a very remote place. When I first went back there, you couldn't catch a bus there. You had to you know, get a lift or, you know, it's a 12 hour drive from Darwin, southeast. And when I went back in the middle of my law degree, I went back and I, you know, I, th I thought I was you know, I thought I was kind of a bit cool. I had dreads and wore Birkenstocks before they were really cool. And, um, you know, and I turned up in this town, which is, you know, completely different to what I had grown up with. And um, I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm studying Western law and I'm studying treaty law and environmental law. And, you know, we can do all this stuff and it's all about rights. And they were like, ah, you know, that's not really what it's all about, you know. Everything's about the country, and you know, the only reason why we have um, authority over the land is through our songs, our wallabas, and our gujiga, and um, our dances, and um, and our ceremonies. And um, so that was really the beginning of a massive journey, um, a really massive journey of flipping the whole um, studying of law and the communication of what's important. Um, and at that time, I watched Two Laws, which is a really, really amazing documentary that was done by Carolyn Strawn and um, Alessandro Cavadini in the late um, in the late 60s and, and 70s. And it's it's heralded as the first major documentary, which where an Aboriginal community co-produced something with with the with um, the filmmakers. And through that that process, um, the idea that Two Laws existed was um, really importantly documented historically. Um, and through, through that, that notion, the elders that I met were saying, oh, we really want to continue to do that story as law. You know, this is what, Larissa, you write about a lot. You know, the idea that in our world, st story is law. And um, the idea of communicating that in, um, in a way that reaches not only the people around you in situ, you know, the people that you're sitting in a circle at the, at the fire with, but how do you reach other generations that are not on country? How do you reach generations that have been ripped from their family and taken to other places? Um, how do you reach generations down the track? And Two Laws was heralded still in the 90s as that 
sort of thing, and that was a, a video documentary. And so um, after that moment, I, um, I really got into um, filmmaking as a, as a way to, um, as a, you know, the camera is my weapon of choice. You know, it's a way to speak back to the to to colonisation. It's a way to transform um, understandings of um, that are outdated. It's a way to create um, and share authentic voices. I think, um, and a, and a way to offer a, a new mode of translation and communication that is much more authenticated um, through through that process. Um, yeah, people thought I was crazy. Um, Larissa, when I started working for Larissa, she was like, what are you doing, man? Like carrying a camera around and doing things like that and what's new media and all yeah. the things when it wasn't trendy. Um, but it's, it's sort of, it's become much more of a um, mainstream thing. Well, I would say in my defence that even though I didn't understand it, I was smart enough to let you do it until I caught up. So. <laughs> um, what does it mean to you to be able to tell Indigenous stories? Um, I think, you know, it's for me it's about um, holding on to what's, what's important to you. It's very much about a family endeavour. I've never really told a story that doesn't own me, I guess. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about, but in, you know, in our law, going through our ceremony and our law um, means that there's a lot of different rules around what you share. So, um, you know, as a, as a Garawa man, you know, I'm, I'm, I have responsibilities over my mother's, my mother's, um, all of the different aspects of my mother's, my mother's country, um, the animals that are my mother. So um, the white crane, um, Wanora is my mother. Um, and um, the rainbow parakeet is my mother. So you have responsibilities to tell stories that you um, are related to. Um, so I think for me, it's about um, understanding the responsibility of what you do when you tell a story, um, maintaining the important relationships that surround the story, and the intent of why, you, why you're telling the story being really trying to be more overt and clear about that is, is something that I've found um, to be much more pertinent and meaningful for me personally. So Wabata Bunanu, for example, the Watershield film, was something that really was taking the two laws strategy, so the two laws strategy which was created decades before, and the elders said, no, we want you to tell the story again. And um, when we were shooting Wabata Bunanu with um, John Harvey as the producer, um, it was amazing. All of my mothers and all my relations came into the film. Literally, um, the white crane flew into shot over the river um, that was contaminated. Beautiful shot. And um, uh, Kanganga, the sea eagle, um, which is the final shot in the film, um, flew in, you know, just literally flew into the frame. And for us, that's really, really important the idea that you're doing the right thing for country. Um, so it's often deeply mediated by, um, by the elders and by, by the mentors. And, um, and it's often, it really butts up, 
you know, I think indigenous storytelling butts up against the institutions that fund fund these things because it's it's quite a different system. Um, so that's often um, a challenge. Yeah. But just it's such a great point to ask you to talk a bit about the methodologies you've been working on and developing, mm. which I flagged at the beginning of our talk, as a real way in which you've sought to bring those knowledge systems into the Western Academy. Maybe you can tell yeah. a little bit about the work that you're doing, particularly yeah. around story work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, some of you might, might have, might have uh, read a little bit about decolonising methodologies, and um, Linda, Linda Toewai-Smith in particular is... Um, is, 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 is uh, one of my absolute, one of, you know, our, um, you know, the leading scholar in this space, you know, one of the leading scholars, and she wrote Decolonizing Methodologies. And from there, a number of other really important um, spaces have opened up. And one, one of those is um, uh, the, you know, esteemed elder Joanne Archibald and Indigenous Story Work. And um, through, that, through that work, um, in particular, I think the, the idea of decolonizing the way we do things um, becomes more profound in terms of um, understanding how that we can do things in a different way. Um, you know, we don't have to do things according to really outdated uh, Western um, theories and methodologies, you know, kind of like dead old white guys theory stuff. People, um, you know, uh, you know, the students that we're teaching are not interested in that. You know, the, the, the students that, that we teach today want to be able to relate and see how these uh, methodologies that they're engaging with have meaning for themselves. And um, that's one of the things that I think drives the decolonizing movement um, in particular is the idea that it allows for the ways of understanding the world the ways of being in the world, and the emancipatory project that um, our, our communities hold. I think you know, that's, that's, that's one of the key elements of um, the reason why these methodologies are doing incredibly well. And I see you know, indigenous story work, even though it comes from all the way from Canada and Stolo tradition, you know, we see it as an allied theory. So we, you know, I, I, did, I developed with my family a methodology called Yanba Jungle, which is really talk story in the context of um, a mining companies, a range of mining companies that wanted to come in and destroy our homelands. So we developed a methodology to speak back to that, um, specifically using our own cultural concepts, specifically using um, the emancipatory project of self-determination and the self-determining um, uh, aspirations of our elders. Um, and also uh, the, way, the way forward in terms of creative practice. So being able to story uh, the work we're doing using our own languages and using our own modalities and cracking open the modalities, the Western modalities that we, we find ourselves trapped in Western disciplines um, has been really, really meaningful. And you know, working with you, Larissa, for quite a few years, we've seen this does work. You know, I think this does work and it does transform everyday lived experiences, and it does really challenge the foundations of this, the system that, that is really oppressive, that is you know, sending our kids, 10-year-old kids in the NT to prison. You know, the, I went into Dondale and, um, to see my nephew, 
And I, I don't know, some of, you know, I think some of you would know, Don Dale is, you know, is a youth prison in, in Darwin that was you know, under review for torturing you know, a number of people using spit hoods and things. And I went into that prison. This is in Darwin and 35 degrees, and it's just a tin, it was a tin shed, a literally a tin shed with a couple of fans. And um, this is the kind of conditions that our people were living in. So the idea that you know, our methodologies are deeply collective, you know, they're family-based, they're all about looking after country and maintaining relationships. Um, and, um, and, and really, I think that's, you know, for me, it's been a really, um, a really beautiful way to, to celebrate um, the continuation and the continuity of our indigenous knowledge systems as well. And if people want to learn more about that, we can recommend that book you've co-authored. Yeah, thank, um, thank you. Looking up Joanne Archibald would be a good start. But yeah. I'm running out of time. I've got two more oh. questions I want to ask oh. before going to the audience. Um, mm. Because you were talking about, uh, in, in fact, you've mentioned it several times, the challenges around uh, caring for country on your traditional land and mm. your family and community have been really staunch in terms of trying to fight off mining and fracking, uh, but have also faced some enormous environmental crises along the way, which are mm. um, becoming um, a, a, an increasing factor during our lifetimes. So I was wondering if you could share with us um, how we can move towards a sustainable mm. relationship with country. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's, it's, it's tricky. I, I think the 80% of our community, indigenous community, live in urban contexts now, and um, it's quite it's quite different for you know the Garawa tribe because we have significant land, and it's a, it's a it's quite different context to say Gadigal and um, and all the the other clans here. Um, I think you know first and foremost land back, you know like. It's pretty, you know, like I think to have a connection to land, you need, you need your land back. You know, the idea of returning land to its indigenous custodians is the first and foremost. Um, but in, in, in light of that, I feel um, some of the massive movements that are happening are really important in understanding, say, our relationship to fire. You know, we've worked you know, in Jambana, and, and I've worked a lot with Victor Stephenson, um, who just wrote Fire Country and has helped set up fire sticks. And anyone who's really interested in understanding how to rekindle a relationship to, to fire that's not driven by fear or, um, you know, yeah, I guess it's fear, you know, like one of the things that Fire Sticks does is teach, do workshops, and, um, and it, it's a national network of people um, in communities who are reactivating uh, cultural burning. And uh, in my mind, um, it's such a profound practice that should be prioritised by the, by, by the government. You know, the recent bushfire um, Royal Commission didn't, didn't make any recommendations to support this, this fundamental practice which was born here and proven over thousands of years. Um, so I think things like that, supporting um, and um, growing indigenous-led leadership in the you know, cultural heritage and um, those practices is fundamentally important. 
And it's beautiful. Victor talks about the idea that water, um, fire should act like water. You know, fire should act like water and trickle across the land. Um, and I, I think it comes back to the idea of water as a connector and, and understanding that if we start to um, engage with, you know, some of these really ancient practices in new contexts, we can actually really profoundly turn around this sinking ship, you know, the system, you know, we're really in a, a crisis. And um, the bushfires, there's really strong evidence for it as well. So the bushfires, you know, tragically just, you know, just went through all the south coast. Um, it was really, you know, we saw the ashes come up and all the way to Sydney. And at the protest, we were act literally inhaling all of the animals that were burnt in the bushfires. You know, this is what's happening in, in our society. And the one place in the whole of the South Coast um, yeah, um, that wasn't burnt was the area that fire sticks had burnt and looked after for three years. Um, and that's profound, and, and it's, it's incredibly beautiful. And it's, it's crazy, Victor's been engaged to go to Canada to do a three-year project um, before the Australian government has taken this seriously here in Australia where this knowledge is held. Other countries and other indigenous peoples have lost this knowledge. Um, so there's, yeah, that's, I think it's, it, that's, in particular, I think fire and connecting with fire is a really, and the story of fire is really important. My final question um, builds on that really, because obviously fire technology is a technology we see people adopting, but um, I guess just uh, keeping with our theme of innovation and David Uniapin, um, how do you see Indigenous people adopting new technologies and other innovations across the country? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, what, I, what I'm seeing is a, is a huge ecology of um, profound uh, mechanisms for transformation of society. So in the, in, the, in the fashion school, for example, there's an amazing work that's going on in terms of understanding that um, fashion and textiles and um, the ethics of materiality, you know, and understanding that actually, you know, some of the designs that we had, which were about impermanence, were really, really, really great designs. You know, we don't need to create designs that will last forever. And some of the work that Lucy Simpson's doing, who's you know, an absolutely amazing designer, Yellowway um, scholar and designer who's working with us, where she's using her whole cultural framework to, to devise and do new things on country um, to really heal her country and, 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 and move forward. It's amazing. Um, I've seen some really incredible work um, also by Joel Spring, who's a Wiradjuri scholar, who's, who's, his project is really about understanding, um, you know, decolonizing matters. So sort of understanding, you know, everything that went into, say, this building, you know, we were just talking before, you know, the, the, the wood of the buildings, where, where, where did, what country does that come from? What birthed this, you know? All of these institutions that we, we sort of sit in all came from places. And understanding that might mean that, oh, actually, we're not going to repeat those projects. We're going to use sustainable materials and um, don't worry about creating permanency, but actually the idea of creating something that is part of this uh, beautiful circular economy. So I think those sort of things really excite me. Um, I think some of the thinking behind it, um, 
and, and also uh, honouring and acknowledging um, First Nations here in Sydney. You know, often we hear oh, all of the on-country work happens at other, other places, but we're on-country here, and um, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, in honouring that, and I really, you know, I'm really blown away with the Unsettled exhibition and the work that the museum's doing to really bring this story to light and that truth-telling the truth is in the land and um, the stories of the land. And um, yeah, the truth telling, I've just got a, um, this, is, this is my um, Miliaris, my, my, my son. And I thought this is a really great image, sort of, you know, the idea of, um, you know, our people really looking, looking forward as a people in Australia, working together, um, but acknowledging, man, this is all stolen lands. And, you know, um, this is unsettled. You know, it's unsettled, it's unseated, it's unbelievable that we haven't moved forward as a, as a nation. And, um, and it's the next generation, like these, you know, our, our children and their children, I feel like that will carry, carry, um, carry, you know, I think we can really feel good knowing that if we support indigenous futurity, we can have a sustainable, um, healthy and, and vibrant future. It's a great <laughs> note to end our chat on and I thank you so much Jason, it's just been such a privilege to hear you speak and such a delight. I'll hand back to Russell now. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.